ability to be applied to our lives, at least to some degree. So we're down to the final two. We're down to the championship game. And tonight we're going to reveal number two, leaving number one for next Sunday night. So you've got to make sure you come back next Sunday night to round out the list. But tonight, our, at, coming in at number two is Deborah. Deborah is going to be our subject matter for this evening. And just to give you a little bit of an overview, uh, as we've done every week, uh, we have these little factoids about Deborah. Uh, the tribe that she's affiliated with is a little bit uh, of a gray area in Scripture. Um, not all of these judges have a very distinct tribe. And, and Deborah's story actually involves many tribes that will uh, participate in the, uh, the military campaign that happens. Uh, some traditions associate, associate her with Naphtali. If you read in the text, she does a lot of her work based out of Ephraim, or at least the territory of Ephraim. But the tribe she's affiliated with, for now we're just listing it as Naphtali, but you can see that primarily took place in central Israel. Her main enemy uh, during the time of her judgeship uh, was the Canaanites. There's a particular king and a particular general who were her enemies, which we'll talk about in just a moment. And when it comes to her enemy count, that's a little bit of a gray area as well because Deborah really wasn't a military leader like previous guys, Gideon, Abimelech, Samson, or even Ehud. She's, uh, she's, she's not the one who's out in front leading the military campaign, but we'll talk about that more in a moment. But during her tenure, you're going to see at least 900 chariots uh, defeated as well as an entire army, uh, so there's significance there. She does have a pretty lengthy period of power, period of, of uh, judgeship uh, that lasts 40 years if you look at the end of Judges chapter 5. And the main point of interest in the life of her is that she was obviously the lone woman on the list, and that will be talked about at length as we go along. But her story is going to span Judges chapter 4 and chapter 5. And Judges chapter 4 is the narrative aspect of her story, of her tenure as judge. Judges chapter 5 is more of a poetic reminisce of her time as judge. And we'll delve into both chapters a little bit, but, but chapter 5 is largely a retelling of the events of chapter 4, but in the form of a song that Deborah was one of the authors of. To give you a, a, a quick breakdown of her story, in Judges chapter 4, we can see that whole judges cycle happen again, where the people sin against God, the people rebel against God, God allows them to be conquered by an enemy nation because of their sin. They cry out to God in agony and asking for him to come and rescue them, and he sends a judge, a deliverer. And so we get introduced to two main uh, good guys in this story. The first is Deborah. She's the first one identified. She's the one associated with, with judging at this time. And then we get introduced to another guy, a guy named Barak. You have Deborah and you have Barak. Deborah's the judge. Barak is the military leader. She's going to summon Barak and say, hey, guess what? The Lord has an assignment for you. You've got to go fight the Canaanites. And if you look at Judges chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, the, the, kind of the crux of the story is that in verse 8, he says to her, well, I'll go if you go with me. And she says, all right, I'll go with you. But guess what? You're not going to get the glory for the win. The glory, the victory is going to be associated with a female. And so as the story unfolds, you assume that female is going to be her, but it's not. 
When Barak goes up against uh, the enemy army of Canaan, it's a vast defeat. We're told in Judges chapter 4 and verse 15, the Lord routed Sisera, who was the general of the opposing army, and all his chariots, all his army. But Sisera got away on foot, and he made his way to the, the tent of a guy named Heber. Heber wasn't there, but his wife Jael was there. And Jael invites this enemy general into the tent, tells him to hide under the rug. He buys it. He's so exhausted, though, that he passes out asleep. And while he's asleep, she takes a tent peg and drives it through his head. It's a wonderful story, a great family story. Anyway, that's what ends up happening. And, and that's where the, the glory of a female kind of comes into the story, that the glory that um, uh, Barak did not receive. But that sums up the narrative section of the story. Then chapter 5 goes into the poetic song version, retelling, a song that is authored by both Deborah and Barak. So that's the gist of the uh, Deborah account. We want to dive into this, account tonight, though, into this account tonight, though. In particular, I want you to notice in Judges chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, that's where we're introduced to Deborah. And we have some unique descriptions of Deborah. In fact, I find, found it interesting in my study that Deborah has more descriptions than the, any of her previous, any of the previous judges. So Othniel, Ehud, some of those guys that came before her, none of them got talked about as much as she did. And if you look at, at the descriptions here, there's, there's, uh, there's three main ones. She's identified as a prophetess, she's identified as the wife of Lapidoth, and she's identified as the one who was judging Israel. So guys, I want to ask you this tonight. Which of these titles or descriptions did you find the most noteworthy and why? I look at this uh, descriptions of Deborah and the one that really jumps out at me, I mean obviously, uh, I think we know she's a judge, she's in the book of Judges and uh, we, we, we know that about Deborah, but this idea of her being a prophetess uh, is, is very interesting to me. Uh, I, I, I think it's worth uh, talking about a little bit because I don't know, maybe it's just me, but when I think of a prophetess or uh, when I think about prophetesses, that makes me pretty uncomfortable, uh, right? Because we, we know in the New Testament and in, in the church that, that women are not to have a leadership in, in communicating the word over a male. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, uh, Timothy talks about that. So, this, in, in today's world, you think of a prophetess. Because there are people who call themselves prophetess in, in today's world. And, and I, I think that makes us uncomfortable. But I think we need to realize when, when it comes to the, God's Word over and over and over again, we, we can see examples of prophetesses all throughout uh, God's Word. Uh, whether it makes us uncomfortable or not, it's there. Um, in Exodus chapter 15 and verse 20, Miriam is called a prophetess. Uh, that's Moses' sister and Aaron's sister. In 2 Kings chapter 22, Huldah, uh, in the time of Josiah, she is called a prophetess as well. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 8, we can see that Isaiah's wife was known as a prophetess. In Luke chapter 2, we know about Anna, the prophetess, in the time of Jesus. And in Acts chapter 21, you can see that Philip's daughters, four, four daughters, they were prophetesses. And so when we think about this word prophetess, it, it, it might make us uncomfortable, but I think it's a powerful thought to think about Deborah in this light. Because when you think about Deborah in her narrative, 
I think her being a prophetess is what is highlighted more than anything else. Sometimes when we think about the judges and we think about Gideon and, and, and Abimelech and all these other ones we've talked about in this series, it's a deliverer, right? That's what we define a judge as, a, a deliverer. But time and time again in, in the story of Deborah, we don't see her winning military battles. We see her communicating on behalf of God. And that's what a prophet does. It's a mouthpiece of God himself. And so when we look at the story of Deborah, it means, when, when, when it says that she's a prophetess, it means that she has a direct connection to Yahweh. That God speaks to her and that she communicates on God's behalf. Out of everyone in Israel, God chose her as a mouthpiece to the people. And I think that's a powerful thought to have. Throughout her narrative, this is the title that we see her using and employing the most. And I think it's worthy of, of note. I think it's something powerful to think about her as a prophetess. Okay, quick question on that. Is there another, and this is just me kind of spitballing here, is there another judge that also has the title of prophet as well? I'm just drawing blank. No other judge in the book of Judges in the book is of Judges. identified as a prophet. Gotcha, gotcha. That's interesting. Was Samuel? Maybe number one on our list. Uh, you, you kind of get into it, you know, maybe yeah. a little bit. I, I, think he, I think he may have gotten into it. That's just something interesting yeah. to note that, you know, you have all, we have six, you know, five other men up there that are incredible guys, but they don't quite get the, yeah. the title of that. So on the flip side of that, okay, so the prophetess is one, is one option there. The other option that I think is, I find really interesting is the fact that she is a judge, right? And that's what is landing her at number two. Um, so here, here's a woman in the, in the land of Israel, and she is given the title of judge, right? This deliverer and kind of the leader there. And I'm just going to make this real uh, short before I hand it over to, to Craig. Something that helped me in my, something that I kind of realized in this, in this study. Once, you, once I, I studied it this time, I should say, I think Deborah being a judge speaks more to her quality than it does to the quality of the men around her. I think growing up, and maybe this is just my, just, it's, I'm sure it's my fault somewhere, right? But I just, I always thought Deborah was a judge because there wasn't enough good men around her to step up. Well, there's not enough men to step up, and since no one else stepped up, Deborah had to do it. What if there was incredibly great men all around her, but Deborah is such an extremely talented and gifted person and such an obvious choice as a leader in this situation, and obviously God is, ordained, you know, God is giving her this wisdom and God is giving her this, that there's something to be said about the qualities Deborah possessed that made her a qualified judge. Yes, maybe there was a weakness in the men around her, right? And I think we're going to see that in some of the context. However, I think she deserves that. She deserves this position based on the quality of character that she is, not just because it's a weak pool around her. Heisman last night, right? A guy won it. Kind of a weak pool this year, right? I don't think he would have won it in previous years, but since the guys around him maybe didn't have the stats and numbers and there was an obvious choice. And I think that's how I always saw Deborah in the situation. Was, well, there's not that many options, so a woman had to step into that. No, Deborah is an incredibly gifted and talented woman that God is obviously working with and working through and so I think there's a lot to be said about not only did you know, she just had to be the judge, but she was worthy of the title judge based on her character alone as well. Like if you think that judge has any relationship to ruler, if I can use that word, I, you know, uh, or king, queen, royalty, leader, 
she, she's probably the most noteworthy of those in Jewish history. Probably. I mean, Athaliah was evil. She was a queen. So you wouldn't consider her. I mean, I guess Esther, although that kind of was over a heathen nation, technically, and the Jews were swept into that. So to me, that's, that was, that's what makes this so noteworthy, is I would agree. I would say, of verse 4, those things, that she's a judge. And like, I'm sitting here thinking, there's so, there so many things that, of course, we don't know about this true account. But I'm like, how does it get to a point, how did she get to a point where people would come to her for matters of judgment? Like, how did she gain that influence um, over this people? And that's, again, speaks to, she must have been pretty special. I agree. And I think that's what I was trying to get to. There's people that you just gravitate to because of their yeah. wisdom, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's just people, you can see it in the youth group, you can see it in any social setting. People, some people just kind of have that mag magnetism, right? Mm -hmm. And it seems like Deborah is this type of woman that people have said, okay, well, I have a problem, I need some help, I'm going to Deborah. Or Barack's like, I'll go, can you come along too? Right? Yeah, you know, exactly. You know, so exactly. That, that, I see it totally. Yep. So, so it's fascinating because Deborah is the only individual in the book of Judges to be identified as a prophetess. Mm -hmm. She's the only individual in the book of Judges that actually is identified as functioning in a judicial capacity. Mm -hmm. And she's the only individual in the book of Judges that has also the label of wife. Think about that. She's not just this single woman doing her thing. She is a, a wife. She has a husband. She has the responsibilities that come with the home. And uh, there, is an there is a metaphor uh, in the fifth chapter alluding to her as a, as a mother as well. Whether or not she had kids, we don't, we don't know the specifics of, and I think that might come up later. But um, here's, the, here's somebody functioning in all these unique capacities that no other character in the book of Judges can lay claim to. It's just fascinating. And yet still, when you look at Deborah's tenure as a judge... It includes the cooperation of a military commander named Barak. When you look at their unique relationship, you have her fun functioning essentially as the mouthpiece of God and him functioning as the hands of God to some degree. He's the, he's the military enforcer. I want you to consider Barak. He's mentioned uh, here in, in the chapter. What one word would you use to describe him? And in in light of what little we know about Barak, how should we make sense of his inclusion in the Faith Hall of Fame? See, if you turn over to Hebrews chapter 11, Deborah is not mentioned, but Barak is. So how would you describe Barak, and, and why do you think he's in the Faith Hall of Fame? I got lots to say about this one. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give the floor over, and I hope I'm not going to stomp on you guys. To me, so you said one word, and the one word I wrote was faith is the word I used. He's in the Hall of Faith, as mentioned in Hebrews 11. Um, and I, I, there's part of me that feels inadequate to be this fat dude sitting in this chair and criticizing uh, a man who had the bravery to go to war for his God and for his country. Jay, you brought this out a couple weeks ago about we just don't know. I mean, like, we really don't. Uh, the things, the fear they would have had against a technolo technologically advanced army, it appears, mm -hmm. by the context. And so I'm, I'm just going to kind of to start this thing. To me, I'm pretty impressed by this guy. 900 chariots of iron to go against them. Yeah, that's a great point. I, mean, you know, I hadn't even thought about that. You know, we had talked about it a few weeks ago, but that's exactly right. You know, you have, and you have the idea that when Barak leads them to war, 
He's leading them. He is not looking back, calling. Them. It says, they, and, the, and the men of Israel followed Barak, right? So yeah. Barak is running down the mountain first, right? Into the teeth of those 900 chariots. So yeah, that's a great point. And but on the other side, yes, Barak is amazing. He deserves to be in Hebrews 11, obviously, right? God, God said that. My one word was dependent. And that, and that to a degree is okay, right? That to a degree is okay. The problem I have with Barak, and again, like, who am I to say? Well, the problem I've got with the, you know, Barack, like I, you know, as if I don't got any problems. Verse, verse eight. If you will go with me, then I will go. Man, that's amazing. If we stop right there, he's dependent on Deborah, and I'm okay with that, right? Because he's saying he is recognizing she is a prophet. I have this message that she just told me. God said, "You lead my people. I'll call Sisera out, and you'll be victorious." And he goes, okay, then if you come with me, I'll go, right? Almost like a, a child who has to have that blanket or us that have to, have to have that kind of omen with us or whatever it may be, something that we just feel better with, right? But still stepping on that. You know, the issue comes in that second comment, right? And again, what an incredibly dangerous thing he's signing up for. So that being said, is a great point. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And that's the only thing. It's like, oh, you're so close. It's okay with needing someone. He needed Deborah. And man, that's okay. We all should have a Deborah in our life that when we were challenged to, to go into a battle, we go, well, I can do it if you'll go with me. That's great. We've got to have a Deborah that's in our corner like that. The problem is when we're so dependent on Deborah that if that Deborah can't go with us, we go, then I, can't, I just can't do it. Right? Because that wasn't even part of the plan in the beginning. Deborah's the one saying, God's going to lead you out. He's going to do this. And so it's that second comment. That it's like, man, I feel for him, right? I, I, I get it. He just, to, to, to have heard from the, you know, the prophetess' mouth, you're going to be victorious, Barak. And for him to say, well, I'm not even going to do it unless you come with me. And that, that hurts. But it, God sees that. God hears that comment. And then God ordains them to put them in Hebrews chapter 11, right? So it's an amazing, it's not like this is even a mark against them. It's God still says, and that's my man, right? That's the guy that I, want. I wish there was more time to be talked about, right? So I love that aspect of him. So he's dependent. Uh, and I think, you know, application-wise, we just got to make sure, one, maybe we have a good Deborah in our life, someone that's willing to stand with us and go to battle with us that we feel better to have with us. But just to make sure that whether that's a person or whatever it may be, that we're ultimately, our dependent is ultimately God. And, um, and realizing that he'll never not go with us. So, so I think that the, the thing going on here is, is you can really look at Barak in two different lights. You can look at him as uh, a man of faith. But you can also look at him as someone who's dependent. And I, some of the scholars I, I was looking at, they were calling him a coward in some respects. And, and I don't know about that. Yeah, and so I, I think that's a little harsh to look at one verse and to say that he's a coward because of it. So, if I were to describe Barak, I, I would go with the word obedient. Okay? I, I feel like Barak is obedient. And perhaps to some readers and to some uh, scholars, to a fault. Uh, because he does defer to Deborah over and over and over again in this chapter. Uh, multiple times we can see Barak deferring over and over again. Even though he was the military leader, which at the time should be the number one status in, in, in the nation, he deferred to Deborah over and over again, as Jay pointed out in verse 8. If you go with me, I'll go, but if you do not go with me, I will not go. 
Uh, that's where people come with the, the cowardice uh, comment. But I want to focus on Barack in a different light, kind of closer to what uh, Craig was talking about. Uh, I think Barack sees Deborah as someone he should be under, someone he should be serving, someone he should place himself below and place her above because Barack realizes Jehovah speaks to Deborah. Jehovah doesn't speak to me. Jehovah doesn't talk to me, and I don't have a line with Jehovah the way Deborah does. So I better be Deborah's right-hand man. I better elevate Deborah in every way possible because God has elevated her in every way possible. And so when I see Barak, I see someone who understands that Jehovah spoke directly to Deborah, not himself. He sees that she was connected to Jehovah in such a way that he knew his best chance of leading a, a successful battle, his best chance was to have God's, God's chosen right beside him. And so when he says, if, if, if you will go, I will go, but if you don't, I won't, I'll, maybe in some respect he is saying, if I go without you, I'm going without God. Because God had chosen Deborah in such a way. And they had that connection. So because Deborah was the Lord's chosen mouthpiece, I believe Barak wanted her by his side. And this kind of goes hand in hand with what we see in Hebrews chapter 11, this word obedient, right? It's, it's, it's the faith hall of fame, but in past studies we've also talked about how it's the obedience hall of fame because with every act of faith, there was an act. There was a verb. Uh, there, there, there was something, a work that they did to display that faith. And I think that's exactly what we see from Barak. He, his action, his, his, his work was that he put God's chosen mouthpiece above even himself. And I'm, I'm sorry, I know you want to get moving, but I, I told you I had a lot to say. Three quick things, three quick things. <laughs> 10,000 dudes from two different tribes followed this guy. Mm -hmm. Number two, the, he was told the battle was going to take place by the river, the Kishon River. And I pull, you pull up the map, the topography, it ain't hill country, it's a valley. And you're going to fight against chariots in a valley. That's not a recipe for a good fight. It'd be to get them in hilly, horrible place for them to run their chariots. I don't know, somebody can correct me on that later if you like to. And then chapter five, I'd emphasize, I'm not gonna step on, I know what's coming, but verse two and verse nine of chapter five in that song, I know Barack was part of, uh, of singing it, but it seems to me verse 2 and verse 9 say there's a lot of respect for these leaders, and Barack was one of them. All right. mm -hmm. Let me throw one other thing out there that stands out to me is, is, is Barack knows going into this, he's going to get no glory. Oh, yeah, and he doesn't complain about that. About that. Yeah. Yeah, amen. He's accepting it. So maybe there's a little bit of, of humility that he should be credited with as well. Um, but, there, but obviously some great observations uh, about this guy and so he and Deborah are kind of like this this tandem force to be reckoned with and and through their combined leadership ultimately victory is achieved over the Canaanites and then it's recounted in the form of a victory song that's attributed to Deborah 
and Barak. We often, you often hear that Judges chapter 5 is the song of Deborah, but she's a co-author to that psalm. We should note that. Um, but it's a beautiful piece of poetry, a, a beautiful uh, recounting of the events. We're not going to read, read it in its entirety, but I have asked these guys to share with us what the most significant stanza in the song of Deborah and Barak is to them. Okay. Uh, I'm going to answer that question by reading another song. Okay, okay. And this is going to make some people in this room extremely happy to hear the lyrics, okay? Oh, say can you see, by the dawn's early light, was so proudly we held to the twilight's last gleaming, whose broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous fight or the ramparts we watched were so gallantly streaming. This is the one I really want to focus on. This is the stanza. And the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there, right? Francis Key there in 1814 writes this because he he go, he's in the hull of the ship. There's a battle going on. He sees a flag through one of the port windows, right? Maybe even a crack in the ship. He sees the flag. The British are bombarding that area. And the only way he knows what, uh, that who's been victorious is that the next morning when, all, when the sun rises and the smoke is cleared, the flag was still there, right? And we're not going to do the Pledge of Allegiance or anything, right? Everybody calm down. However... My favorite passage from this, from this chapter is verse 31, the, the last part. Thus let all your enemies perish, O Lord, but let those who love him be like the rising of the sun in its might. And that thought at the bottom right there, let those who love him, our Lord, be like the rising of the sun in its might. I was reading that, I remembered old Francis Key back here, right? And it just... This is a kind of a pump-up chapter, I'll be honest. Mm. I've read, you know, Judges 5 before and just, you know, said, oh, there's Deborah Brock's song. I've read it this, kind of, you know, trying to find, you know, a passage. And it was, I was pumped, I'll be honest. I was ready to, you know, go to battle with Barack, right, you know, follow right after him. It's an encouraging chapter. It's a very, um, I don't know, just confidence-boosting as a, as a follower of God that that's our God, that there's no enemy that, that you know, stands before him, right? And the end, the last thought is, and by the way, those that stand with him are going to look just like the sun who rises in its might. Mm -hmm. When the night is at its darkest, when it seems like all hope is gone, that's when the sun rises. And so, yeah, when the bombs clear and the smoke fades, maybe the flag is still there, but who, you know, whatever. But in our life, as the night fades, as our troubles in our situations, as dark as they might get, those who follow the Lord will rise like the sun in all its might. Mm. And what an encouraging thought that is. I know how great my God is. That's, un, that's an obvious thing. But then to reflect that back on me, that that's what's been instilled in me, that I can also be like that, I'm ready to follow Barack. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's a powerful thought. And... Uh... I go back to verse 2 uh, for, for, for my favorite uh, part of this song. and uh, I mean, part of that is because of the uh, March Madness Bible Edition That's right. uh, series that mm -hmm. Jay, myself, and Isaac May did back in 2020. Uh, Isaac May actually knows the tune to this <laughs> song and sung it to all the viewers there. Uh, go back and listen to that. It was a, it was a fun time. But seriously, no, verse number 2. Seriously, verse number two, I think, uh, really highlights 
what's going on in Israel in this time. In the time of Deborah, I think verse number 2 really stands out. In, in, in the New King James, it says, When the leaders lead in Israel. In the New International Version, it says, When the princes in Israel take the lead. The English Standard Version says that the leaders took the lead in Israel. When you look at those different uh, translations and you look at this issue happening in Israel right now, it really nails it. Just to start out the song, they start out by saying, this is what can happen when the leaders in Israel will step up and lead. This is what we are capable of. Look, look right before it. It says the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. Destroying the king of Canaan was unfathomable at the time. Because, as you were talking about, their, their technological advances and, and their military and their might and all those different things... Canaanites were, were a plague to the Israelites for however many you know, decades, generations. The Canaanites were a problem to Israel. Look at verse 24. The Israelites, under the lead of a woman, utterly decimated the Canaanites, killed King Jabin of Canaan. And the first line of the song is, This is what can happen. When the leaders in Israel will lead. I think the beginning of this, of this song is, is, is trying to say, this is what happens when you actually choose to lead. When the men, notice in, in one of the translations it says the princes. Here's Deborah singing a song about the men stepping up. Not herself. But it says, when men, you know, what it's saying is when men actually rise up and be who God calls them to be, this is what can happen. I think that's what makes verse 2 so powerful. When men willingly, not only step up and lead, but it says willingly offer themselves. When they willingly offer themselves to lead and fulfill the roles that God has placed on them, I believe what we learn from this story is there is no limit to what God can accomplish if men will step up and lead willingly. Uh, so, of course, my favorite part is what some people think is a scribal error, and that's in verses 15 and 16. And in that section of the song, they're talking about these are the tribes that when the call went out to come help, helped. And these are the tribes who didn't. And if you look at the end of verse 15 and the end of verse 16, the exact same words. That's why some are like, this is an error. And I'm like, nope. That's not an error. That's something that's happened in Craig's life plenty of times. Because if you look at the end of verse 15, we learn among the clans of Reuben, while, while the call was out there to come fight in the war, to come help, among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. And then we move on to verse 16 and have another question. And we're like, at the end of verse 16, let's check in with the clan of Reuben and, and see where they're at. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. And that, I mean, I'll be honest with you, that sounds like Craig a lot. Is that 
Craig. Oh, is really thinking seriously about <laughs> rededicating his life to Christ, taking that extra step. I'm going to really ponder that and think over that, meditate that on that. Six months later, Craig, where are you at with that thing? Oh, I'm still searching my heart <laughs> about that thing. Um, and, I, and I know I have loved ones who I feel like fall into this category. It was really interesting you dig into the Hebrew too. It actually isn't exact repetition because the first Hebrew word in 15 where they're searchings actually should be translated as um, a decree, resolve. Almost like they made a decision in verse 15 to come help. But when you check back in with them on verse 16, they're still right where they were with their sheep and, and haven't moved. Um, and so I think that's a danger for, for us and for me. You know, I can, I can be moved and greatly stirred and make the res- decision to change my life. But then you check back in with Craig in verse 16, and he's, he's still thinking about how it's going to happen. And so just getting moving, getting to work. All great observations. Again, it's a, it's a great uh, song here that reflects on the events of the previous chapter and then, then causes us to think about how it applies to us. I'm going to reorder questions for just a moment. We're still going to come back to all the questions. But I want to get to this one. I want to make sure we have time for it. Yeah, Craig, you'll, you'll be all right. I want, to, I want to make sure we have time for this one. But we've been talking about how Deborah is this leader in the story. This woman is, is taking, she's a prophetess, she's the judge, she's, she's a leader in a significant, <coughs> capacity, significant capacity. What impact, if any, should this account have on our understanding of gender issues in the church? I know those guys have a lot to say on this one, so I'm going to allow them to do it. Um, I don't know if this account solves or fixes gender issues, quote, end quote, but I, I, I just had three takeaways. It teaches us a few things. Number one, that God, according to the riches of his grace and his providence, may choose to bless a given woman with gifts and talents above those which he might bestow on a given man. Number two, that there are plenty of situations in which a woman can offer godly counsel and direction even better than that of the male counselor, depending on the context and again, according to the grace given to her by God. And then number three, that sometimes a good man needs the encouragement and support of a good woman to do what God desires for him to do. So I'll, I'll let that, those dominoes hit and send those that way to these guys. They wanna get into the gender issues further. So I was told I could not use her name, but a woman that I love and adore and am married to <laughs> once said in a, you know, just driving down the road type of conversation, she once said this, do you ever think that God chose men to lead because he knew if it wasn't entirely up to them, they wouldn't do anything? Just think about that. Think about that for a second. And just think about how true it probably is. Do you think God chose men to be the leaders in the home and the leaders in, in, in His church? Because if it wasn't entirely up to them to lead, the women would take care of everything. I think, that, I think there might be something to that. Because when I look at the church today, I can see woman after woman after woman that is way better at doing certain things than I will ever be. 
and that any of us in leadership will ever be. When you look at this in an overgeneralized but a very real sense, women are better organizers, better planners, better sympathizers, better communicators, better initiators, better at seeing people's needs, and better at so many different other things than men are. And so the problem, though, is that some men, some husbands, and, and some, some, some leaders, quote-unquote, they know that about women, and they know that about their wife, and so they are more than happy to let the wife and let the mother do all of the leader, leadership and do all of, of the spiritual uh, growth in the home. And we talked about this this, this past Father's Day when, when we had our series on, uh, on, on men and how men need to step up in the roles that God has given us. But sadly, there are men who, who are just as happy to let the women do everything than to ever do anything themselves. But just as Deborah... Here's this woman who, if, if, if anyone was ever qualified to say, get out of my way, man, and let me do it. If anyone was qualified, it was Deborah. But I go back to verse 2 of chapter 5, what we were talking about a second ago. Here Deborah is saying that the leaders, that the princes, that the men would lead in Israel. Here is a woman who had, who had risen to the top of leadership in the whole nation and yet she is still trying to encourage and trying to stir up and trying to to motivate these men to finally be a man that the leaders would take the lead in Israel you know when you look at the the, the story of Deborah <clears throat> Deborah needed Barak Deborah needed Barak in order to accomplish what they accomplished but Barak also needed Deborah. And so that's, that's what I see the correlation between uh, today and, and the church today and what we see in the story of Deborah is, yes, women can and, and do rise up and lead in so many different ways. But God's will is that all the men in this room would look at those women's examples and try with everything they have to rise even above them in whatever we try to do as leaders in the Lord's church. That's great, Ben. I mean, both of, both of those comments really well. That comment you led with, that's incredible. I yeah, hope. Does, does that anonymous person sit under a palm tree and offer any uh, <laughs> counsel? No. So, I just hope no. Jensi knows whoever this woman is. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know, man. Here's the thing. I don't know if this answers any problems. I know there are people all around in the, you know, in the, in, in the Christian world that I'm sure looks at Deborah and go, there's the answer, right? Women can take any leadership, leadership position now in the New Testament, right? There's a lot of flaws in that logic. And I think one thing you can easily point to before I'm going to kind of go quickly so we can wrap up. Um, there's no qualification for judges. It's not like this goes against some magical qualification list that God gave it. Well, judge, Judges chapter 1, to be a judge in Israel, you have to be married, you have to have been a, a, an Israelite your whole life. It, God was picking people that he saw worthy of the title judge as the need arose. It was him picking them, right? Uh, outside of maybe Abimelech. Abimelech. Um, 
she's not crossing any lines here. This is an incredibly talented leading woman leading in a way that honors her and honors God, right? I think that is completely different when you step into if she had been the king of Israel, right? Or if she had been, this is not like um, one of the, you know, if she had been the 13th apostle, right? Then we're stepping into a different realm, right? Because then we start stepping into areas that have a listed, qualified list of, um, of leadership qualities, right? So I, I don't know if this answers any questions. It's an extremely incredible example of what women, what women can do and how incredibly va- valuable they are to the kingdom. Mm-hmm. We can't make it without, we, there's just no way, right? And so I think there's that. And then very quickly, uh, I want to point out just how amazing Deborah is in chapter 5 and verse 7, uh, talking about how bad the world is. The villagers, pretty much the way of life had ceased, right? The days, uh, peasantry, the villagers ceased. They ceased in Israel until I. So obviously we've got Deborah speaking here. Until I, Deborah, arose. Mm. And then here it comes. Until I arose, comma, a mother in Israel. How did Deborah accomplish being a leader in Israel? By honoring the identity of a woman. She was, she was married. She was a mother. She was a woman. Not that being married or a mother makes you a woman, but she didn't cross into another way of living. She did not cross off, well, in, or, in order for me to be a man, I've got to, in order for me to be a leader, I've got to be more like this. No, no, no. She said, this is who I am, and I'm going to lead in the present sense. So women, in, you know, speaking to the women in this congregation, don't feel like you have to fit a certain mold when it comes to positions that don't have qualified lists, right? I think that's my takeaway in, in this situation is, and, and, and my too, in order for me to be a leader, I don't have to look like those leaders. I need to be the best person I can be. I need to challenge myself to be a, the best version of me. But all I can be is me. And God will use me to lead in those ways. And I think Deborah honors that in an incredible way. All right, with the limited time we have left, sum up with this. Why does Deborah make it to number two when she appears in one-third of the verses that even take up her account? She's such a, a small part of the story. Why does she make it to number two, and, and do you have a big takeaway? Well, she makes it to number two because the song says, you know, there was one great woman and 14 men, right? Mm-hmm. Some of you know the songs. Aubrey, shout out. There's a song, you know, it says one great woman and then just, you know, 14 men. I guarantee a woman made that song. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, but seriously, she makes it to number two in my mind because in a time, you know, just as Jay said, when no one was rising up, she rose up as a mother to Israel. And obviously, we, we look at Deborah with uh, just, we're blown away at her leadership and um, what she was able to do in the, in, in the certain limitations of the day that she had. She blew them out of the water. We haven't even gotten into just the ancient Near East and their view on women in general. We see that time and time again in Scripture. But I think what the story of Deborah tells us is that there's probably dozens and dozens of more Deborah stories in the Bible that could have been written with next to all of those other great leaders. For every Barak, there was a Deborah. For every one of these great leaders that we read about all throughout the Bible, there was a Deborah somewhere encouraging a man to do what he should do. Encouraging a man to step up 
in the ways that he should step up. So the question, the, the biggest takeaway that I have tonight is, am I going above and beyond in my service to God the way Deborah did? Blowing away certain limitations so that I can serve God. Just shattering expectation the way Deborah did so that I can further the kingdom of God. Or am I simply doing enough to get by? Am I simply doing enough to just, just say that I'm doing something? That's, that's, that's what I get out of the story of Deborah. Deborah didn't just simply do enough. She scraped the bottom of the barrel of what she was able to do and took it to as far as she could possibly take it, to the top of the whole nation of Israel. To me, it's, she's number two because she has a certain spunk, moxie, a daring sarcasm in the way she talks about God's will that I only hear God ever use. Joshua 1.9 to Joshua, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. And she does that kind of stuff twice. Verse 6, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? And then later, at the end of verse 14, does not the Lord go out before you? God's still in control, ain't he? He said he was going to do it, didn't he? And I just love that and think it's awesome. And I cannot imagine talking to any of you guys like that. Like, has, has not God told you? Seek you first the kingdom of God? <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, it just seems so out of place. And so to me, that's awesome and worthy of number two. Maybe even of number one, but uh, we'll, we'll debate that maybe next week. Very quickly, I think why Deborah's at number two is because if Deborah's not in this story, yeah, this is a pretty sad story because no one's stepping up. Deborah's an incredible image of a mother in this passage too. Anyone in this room that ha that has had a good mom or a good mother figure in their life, you'd probably put her at number one, maybe number two, at the most influential person in your life, right? Having a good mom might be one of the biggest blessings God can give us, right? Outside, right next to having a good father. This passage reminded me, reminded me of that. I talked to Justin Davis about this the other day and just the, the blessing a good mom can be. And that's what Deborah acts like to this. I mean, with the, exactly what you're saying, Craig, that language right yeah, there, it's like talking mom. to a child like, can yeah. I just tell you to do that? You know, yeah. this Deborah is stepping up and she's being a mother to Israel mm -hmm. saying, okay, well, then I'm, I'm going I'm, I'm to take care of this. So... She, uh, this was this is a good study for me. This challenged me. And I really yeah. enjoyed it. I appreciate you guys and, and the uh, time you've put into this and appreciate uh, you uh, being here with us to study tonight. Uh, let's close out with a word of prayer. Lord God in heaven, we thank you for the example of these judges that we've been able to study for several weeks now. We thank you for the, the leadership they offered in a, in a time when, when uh, there, there was a lack of leadership in, the, in Israel. We're thankful for the lessons we can learn from their lives. And tonight we're especially, example, especially appreciative of the life of Deborah and, and what we've learned from her. Lord, help us to rise up and lead in whatever capacity that we need to. Help us to represent you the way that you need us to in the world around us. And help us, Lord, to bring victories for your kingdom, just like Deborah and Barak did. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for sending your son to die for us. May we never take for granted your love, your grace, and your mercy. And it's through your son's name we pray. Amen.